Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. These considerations were prepared just after the 75th anniversary of the Soviet Army's capture of the Auschwitz extermination camp and a seemingly greater than usual degree of publicity was given to the annual International Holocaust Memorial Day. The Holocaust is so egregious that its importance can hardly be overemphasised and the information about it is vast. Contributors to commemorations and commentators at other times say that we must learn and never forget the lessons to be drawn from it. Those lessons seem to be presented in terms which maximise the prospects of acceptance. That is unsurprising and reasonable because anyone who offers an opinion wants it to be accepted but can carry a risk that valid and important lessons are either unrecognised or suppressed for fear of unpopularity. In particular, people seem always to omit a lesson connecting current circumstances with the thinking which led to the Holocaust. I'm going to focus on that lesson. As well as showing respect for victims and survivors, Holocaust commemoration and education are encouraged to prevent it from happening again. As if it has not, but it has. A televised commemoration in London included several acknowledgements that genocidal events have occurred in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and the Sudanese province of Darfur. Predictably, however, there was, and seemingly never is, acknowledgement that it has been happening for decades as a normal part of daily life in almost every country in the world. The abortion industry is by its very nature equivalent to the Holocaust. The context is different, but the aggregate act is the same and far more numerous. Systematic, state-sponsored mass slaughter of innocent human beings. In a speech in August 2010 on the subject of Christianity in American political life, Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia formerly of Denver, said that abortion is the foundational human rights issue of our time. I agree with that and with much else which His Grace has said. Unfortunately, which is an understatement in this context, momentum and power are held by people who say that abortion is a human right not a breach of human rights. 
Anyone who said that the Holocaust was required by human rights would be pilloried as insane or evil. But saying that abortion is a human right is regarded at all levels of society as a legitimate opinion with which no one should disagree. The Romans, said Archbishop Chaput, had a visceral hatred for Carthage, not because Carthage was a commercial rival or because its people had a different language and customs, but above all because its people sacrificed their infants to Baal, a male fertility god. Apparently many people in areas of the ancient Middle East worshipped him. His grace said that for the Romans, who themselves were a hard people, infanticide was a unique kind of wickedness and barbarism. And that in today's world, infants are routinely sacrificed to choice. BBC Radio 4 broadcasts periodically a series of programmes entitled The Moral Maze. Each episode discusses a particular subject. The feasibility of the series depends on uncertainty, disagreement and even controversy. The fundamental question which underlies each discussion is how should this matter be evaluated? Uncertainties, disagreements and controversies tend to focus on the factors which are relevant to the matter in question and on the weight or priority which should be given to each factor. Sometimes progress is blighted by dispute about the meaning of a word which is basic to the whole debate. A good example of that occurred on the 23rd of January 2020 in a Radio 4 discussion which, although entirely unrelated to the moral maze, would have been at home in that series. The discussion was prompted by the contemporaneous World Holocaust Forum in Jerusalem. In his speech to the forum, Benjamin Netanyahu mentioned that Auschwitz is, quote, the ultimate symbol of evil, unquote. Commenting on that, Radio 4's interviewee said that evil is easier to use as an adjective than as a noun, because it is a very difficult word to define. That difficulty is caused by disunity of belief about criteria to be applied, and or about the meaning of such criteria. The Catechism of the Catholic Church contains references to evil which imply clearly that evil is the opposite of good, although that proposition is unilluminating unless good is understood. In the Catechism you can see the next few statements. Evil is humanity's rejection of God and opposition to him. It is an abuse of God-given freedom. Original sin was evil. It has plagued all of humanity because inclination to evil is inherent in fallen human nature. 
A symptom of that inclination is a susceptibility to error. That last point reminds me of the error of the head of the religion department in a Catholic school who showed scepticism about the dogma of original sin. He thought it more likely that the tendency to waywardness is a developmental flaw, a psychological weakness, or the result of adverse social circumstances. The Catechism, paragraph 387, names those ideas specifically as errors. When that fact was mentioned, the head said that the Catechism is just a book written at a particular time in history and is subject to increasing knowledge of human behaviour. A result of error is disagreement. Various motives, for example, an effort to conceal the existence of disagreement or to mitigate the effects of it or to provide soft ground in which to sow the seeds of an ideology, can lead people to seek refuge in words which are notable for ambiguity. Several of these have become pillars of the political correctness which prevails so extensively, not least among go-with-the-flow clerics. An example of probably well-meant but nevertheless potentially dangerous ambiguity was heard from Prince Charles in his speech at the World Holocaust Forum 2020. He said that hatred and intolerance still exist, often shown by use of words which are used as badges of shame to mark others as enemies, to brand those who are different as somehow deviant. That is true, but at least in the form by which he described it, not intrinsically unjustifiable, as probably he would agree in some cases. Like it or not, the badge function of words is essential to language. We need words which identify and describe and for as long as moral codes exist, it will be necessary to distinguish between credit and shame and between conformity and deviance. Those concepts permeate attention to the Holocaust, so condemnation of their use is irrational. Quoting a survivor's warning against failure to make the connection between memories of past atrocities and the present, Prince Charles said that the Holocaust must never be allowed to become simply a fact of history. Yes, but by calmly accepting abortion, or worse, promoting it, seemingly few people do make the connection between past atrocities and the present. The Prince pointed out that words can lead to dehumanisation and physical violence. Yes, indeed. The same was said, and debated much, during the post-referendum turmoil about the UK's departure from the European Union. The antidotes advocated during the bitter battle about Brexit were adopted by Prince Charles as a lesson to be learned from the Holocaust. 
Quote, Be fearless in confronting falsehoods and resolute in resisting words and acts of violence. Never rest in seeking to create mutual understanding and respect so that the seeds of division cannot take root and grow. Because we must never forget that every human being is in the image of God. Unquote. Probably the first two of those exhortations are uncontroversial, but only because they are not analysed properly. Falsehood presupposes the existence of truth. Therefore, falsehood cannot easily be even recognised as such, far less confronted fearlessly, when relativism reigns. Relativists are identifiable in their attitudes of, how do you know? Who are you to tell me what to think or how to behave? It's my life and I'll do what I want. If truth and the authority to enforce it are not recognised, the moral basis of resolute resistance to opposition is undermined. However regrettable, it is true that enmity does exist, and it can be not only justifiable, but also necessary to recognise that by their words and deeds, some people are enemies of what is true and good. As our Lord said, by their fruit you shall know them. According to Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia, a Protestant theologian named Stanley Hauerwas believed that the great weakness of Christian witness in our times is that we preach as though we have no enemies. But we do, wrote his grace. And he added that there are active motivated groups which bitterly resent the Catholic Church and the Christian Gospel and would like to silence both. That is as true of the UK and other countries as it is of America. They have allies within the church. It is both justifiable and necessary to be the enemy of the relevant words and deeds of those people. Charity will instinctively be invoked by objectors to that opinion. As if, wrote Pope St. Pius X, it were charity to let the wolf tear the sheep to pieces. They will cite scripture. Using scripture as a rope or gag is a trick played often against the church's teachings. Charity is, however, properly designed to advance truth and goodness, not to undermine and thwart them. We must certainly, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2478, requires, be careful to interpret our neighbours' thoughts, words and deeds in a favourable way. But paragraph 2478 adds that favourable interpretation is required only to the extent that it is possible. In other words, rational and reasonable. We are not required to nurture naivety. There is a common aversion to hearing anything displeasing or disconcerting and reluctance to believe it. 
Such information can easily be dismissed as exaggerated, unrepresentative and or fictional. Emmy Bonhoeffer, the sister-in-law of the famous Dietrich Bonhoeffer, had that reaction in Germany when she told people that Jews were being killed in the concentration camps and their bodies even used to make soap. These were dismissed as horror stories invented by Germany's enemies. When the war ended, the Allies took Germans to local concentration camps and showed them the horrors. One wonders what reactions there might be if the corpses and body parts resulting from the work done in abortion centres were seen by people who, if the subject ever comes to their attention, excuse it. Would they be shocked and support a never again campaign? Or would they, would they be reassured that everything is neat and tidy, safe, and ensures that it is amateurish, squalid, dangerous killings which will be never again? Some of them would make that distinction. But in the 1940s, the victim... I'll read that sentence again. Some of them would make the distinction that in the 1940s, the victims were visibly fully developed human beings whereas now they are only tiny ones. As if, somewhat akin to Nazi eugenic opinions, value should be proportionate to size and capability. Other justifications can easily be imagined. They seem to indicate the mindset of a commandant of the Sobibor extermination camp who had made a good impression during his previous period supervising a euthanasia centre. Although he was, according to a historian of the SS, intimately involved in all aspects of the operation, the killing, as in all of the euthanasia centres, was carried out by doctors and nurses, and he appears to have been able to distance himself from it emotionally. The attitude of this major perpetrator of the Holocaust to what he did can best be described as a kind of morose fatalistic detachment. A similar impression of everyday routine, nothing remarkable, seems to have been given by Adolf Eichmann during his trial for war crimes. He was described as personifying the banality of evil. Is there any difference between such detachment and banality and the apparently calm comments of people who regard abortion as a very necessary service and seem to put it on the level of dealing with bunions. It is interesting to note that David Steele, during the second reading debate of his bill in the House of Commons on the 22nd of July 1966, rejected an opinion which seems very similar to the apparent equation of abortion and a bunions operation. Having said that it is not the intention of the promoters of the bill to leave a, a wide open door for abortion on request, he added that he could not support the view that abortion should be entirely a matter for the woman concerned to decide and that it should be open to all, and that he did not share an expressed hope that the time will come when the whole question of abortion 
will be regarded in the same unemotional light as a tonsillectomy. He said, I cannot accept that. That time seems very clearly to have come, but is he unhappy about it? Has he tried to rectify the situation? Ask him. Write to him at the House of Lords, London SW1A OPW, and see whether he answers the questions. We must be careful to interpret our neighbours' thoughts, words and deeds in a favourable way, in so far as is possible. It is possible to tell ourselves that whereas the people responsible for the Holocaust in the Second World War hated the victims, the people involved in the numerically far greater Holocaust of abortion do not actually hate the victims, but are only indifferent to them. So the motive may be different, but the act is the same. Is it sensible or justifiable to evaluate the two holocausts according to whether the culprits hated the victims or simply regarded them as utterly insignificant and deserving of no protection at all? No, it is neither sensible nor justifiable. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 1756, it is an error to judge human acts by considering only the intention that inspires them or the circumstances, such as environment, social pressure, duress or emergency, etc., which supply their context. There are acts which, in and of themselves, independently of circumstances and intentions, are always gravely illicit, such as murder. One may not do evil so that good may result from it. Paragraph 1754 explains that the circumstances, including the consequences, are secondary elements. They contribute to increasing or diminishing the moral goodness or evil of human acts. For example, the amount of a theft. They can also diminish or increase the actor's responsibility. Circumstances of themselves cannot change the moral quality of acts. They can make neither good nor right an action that is in itself evil. For people who want the end of the abortion industry, the question is one of how best it can be stopped. Probably we shall never know whether Emmy Bonhoeffer believed that informing other private citizens of what was happening in the camps could help to stop it. She revealed that her husband had no such belief. He equated her revelations with putting a foot on the tail of a snake. When that happens, he said, the snake bites. You have to strike the head, he added. The military head of the Nazi snake was struck successfully and the extermination camps were no more. What is the head of abortionism? Relativism. Striking at that 
may seem a vague and philosophical exercise by comparison with attention to when a new life begins, why destroying it is gravely wrong, and what the law should be. It may seem to be a tangential activity, which is intellectually stimulating but of little practical use. However, specific conclusions are derived from general principles, and if a general principle is false, it cannot be expected to lead to a correct conclusion. Relativism is a pervasive, powerful evil which has led to many of today's enculturated immoralities and which will continue to handicap attempts to eradicate them. Its adherents use it to undermine what they wish to bring down, yet it undermines itself. Someone who asserts that no one can know what is true and good, that such matters are mere personal opinions, and that therefore no one's opinion should be enforced, must admit that those assertions are themselves mere opinions, incapable of proof, and therefore no more entitled to enforcement than contrary ones. Relativism is a pervasive, powerful evil which has led to many of today's enculturated immoralities, and which will continue to handicap attempts to eradicate them. Its adherents use it to undermine what they wish to bring down, yet it undermines itself. Someone who asserts that no one can know what is true and good, that such matters are mere personal opinions, and that therefore no one's opinion should be enforced, must admit that those assertions are themselves mere opinions, incapable of proof, and therefore no more entitled to enforcement than contrary ones. Nevertheless, the opinion that truth and right are illusory underlies much of today's thinking and governmental policy. Probably because most people are unfamiliar with philosophical topics, the opinion is put in a wrapper which will make it attractive to them. A particularly effective way of attracting people is to say that something is free. So relativism has often been promoted within a wrapper which has the word freedom on it. Another successful wrapper has liberal democracy on it. As societies in so-called advanced countries have become less and less religious, the word secular has sometimes been added. So, gradually, but perhaps quite rapidly by comparison with other periods of history, liberalism, secularism and democracy have probably become regarded as inseparable from freedom or even as the very meaning of freedom and restrictive rules regarded as undesirable. Yet such an idea of freedom is a mirage, because, as modern circumstances have shown, both freedom and lack of freedom depend on restrictive rules. The key question is, which type of freedom should prevail? This is discussed 
and illustrated with plenty of practical evidence in a book entitled The Global Sexual Revolution and bearing the very appropriate subtitle Destruction of Freedom in the Name of Freedom. The author is Gabrielle Kuby, K-U-B-Y, and its English translation was published in 2015 by LifeSight, an imprint of Angelico Press. My reading of that book was completed just before I finalised this talk. Here is an example of how Mrs Kuby summarised circumstances on which she focused. Quote, the great promise of our time is freedom. Do whatever you want to increase your fun, your pleasure, your happiness and your well-being. You are independent, autonomous, and no one should put rules in your way, least of all the church. God is dead and so is the devil. You construct your own world, decide whether you want to be a man or a woman, and whether to satisfy your sexual needs with men or women or both. You decide whether your child should live or die, whether it should have blue or brown eyes. You decide whether and when you should get a lethal injection once you've had enough of life. Whatever stands in the way of your freedom is deconstructed. Gender identity as man or woman, morality, the family, the church, the sanctity of life. Unquote. You will recognise those as standard aspects of modern liberal secular states. Mrs. Kuby quoted a former judge in Germany who wrote that such a state lives by assumptions that it cannot itself guarantee. On the one hand, as a liberal state, it can only survive if the freedom it grants its citizens is regulated from the inside through the moral substance of the individual and the homogeneousness of the society. On the other hand, it cannot guarantee these forces of regulation from within itself, that is, guarantee them by using legal coercion and authoritarian decree, without giving up its liberalism and sliding back into the totalitarian demands it freed itself from. When, she commented, a society's moral compass has been broken, when good is called evil and evil called good, when citizens and voters in a democratic society have no solid day-to-day -day orientation or renewal of moral substance, then society is on the slippery slope to a new totalitarianism. The 21st century's looming totalitarianism wears a different costume from that of the 20th. No moustache, no jackboots. It goes unrecognised because people today ease their consciences by pointing to the crimes of their forefathers. The new totalitarianism is flexible and can adapt to the values that are popular today. It even wears the cloak of freedom, while step by step destroying the conditions necessary for freedom. It mixes, blends and distorts every truth with lies, and every lie with a grain of truth.
so that people can no longer distinguish truth from falsehood until truth itself becomes suspect. The result is not the abolition of restrictive rules, but their replacement by new ones. Mrs. Kuby's book explains extensively, and interested and observant people will have noticed, that the rules brought in by the global sexual revolution are enforced with just as much, if not more, vigour than those which they replaced. The great irony is that the new rules are championed by relativists. Despite its self-contradiction, relativism's blight is rampant. Furthermore, probably many of its adherents do not realise that it has infected them. It produces much of the routinely condemned division and divisiveness because often the basis of encouragement to reject standards is uncertainty about them. Yet the blame for causing division is usually put not on relativism, but, but on what is condemned as intolerance and extremism. Both sides in a controversy do that. For example, supporters of abortion call their opponents intolerant, and the opponents say that supporters of abortion and their agenda are extremist. In the UK, it is anti-abortion campaigners who have failed to make progress. It is they who seem to be regarded as the extremists. Seemingly illustrating what Prince Charles told the World Holocaust Forum 2020, the badge of shame which is applied to anti-abortion campaigners bears the word intolerant. But whereas the Prince portrayed such badges as reprehensible, the one stuck on opponents of abortion seems irremovable. So is the progress prevented... Sorry, I'll have to go back a little bit. Uh, two, two sentences or so. Seemingly illustrating what Prince Charles told the World Holocaust Forum 2020, the badge of shame which is applied to anti-abortion campaigners bears the word intolerant. But whereas the Prince portrayed such badges as reprehensible, the one stuck on opponents of abortion seems irremovable. So is progress prevented by advocacy of intolerantly extremist opinions and objectives. If pro-lifers want to make progress, they should ponder on that question. In part two of this talk, I shall analyse it and answer it. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Mm -hmm.